Well, in seven, uh, 1517, uh, Hernandez de Cordoba sailed west, representing the Spanish Empire, um, to see what he could find. He uh, was commanding a fleet of three ships, and when they landed at the Yucatan Peninsula and they all disembarked, they were immediately attacked by the native Mayans, uh, armed with their bows and arrows, and 20 soldiers died, including Cordoba himself. Um, and at that point, the rest of the crew... Uh, had to decide what to do. They could either continue to, to fight on, uh, even without their leader, and then that way they could claim the glory of the discovery for themselves and please their governor, Velasquez, who had sent them out, or they could just get back on their ships and hightail it out of there. Uh, they chose option B. They decided, oh, we're done, this is now mission, we're gone. They all got back on their ships, and uh, they went back from where they came. Well, two years later... Um, Hernan Cortes decided to uh, bring a fleet out as well. He decided to come with many more ships, 11 ships manned by 100 sailors and 500 soldiers, one doctor and eight women. Uh, When he landed at Veracruz in Mexico, uh, he knew what to expect. He He anticipated that they'd be attacked, and so they disembarked, and the first thing he had the crews do, uh, as legend has it, is to pull all 11 ships uh, to the shore and then burn them. And so they were all stuck there standing on the beach with no way home, no way to escape. And now there was no question of their commitment. He himself had sold all of his assets. He had gone into debt to help finance this mission. He was 100% committed, and that's what he expected of his entire crew and everyone who was with him. They were going to take this land or they were going to die trying. And as you know, they don't speak Mayan in Mexico, so he was successful. Uh, Well, Jesus calls all of us, in a sense, to burn our ships as well, right? Uh, You don't want to draw the parallel too closely with Cortez. Uh, But Jesus wants commitment from his followers. That's what he demands, Um, 100% loyalty. Uh, You can't be half in and half out, and that's what we're going to see in our text tonight. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Last week we saw, uh, as Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem, meaning that he has decided to to head towards Jerusalem to die. He has foretold his death um, because he was going to Jerusalem and he was taking the quickest route there through Samaria. The Samaritans, who didn't believe in the temple in in Jerusalem, felt uh, that they could not host people that were on their way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus uh, two disciples, James and John, said, well, let's just nuke them. Let's just ask God to bring fire from heaven like Elijah did and wipe them out. And uh, Jesus rebuked them. He <laughs> told the sons of thunder, no. Uh, we learned some lessons from that, that you need to recognize ministry friends, which they weren't doing. They, were, they found someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they were like, well, you're not part of the franchise. And Jesus had to uh, tell them, no, if they're not against us, they're for us. But then also, not only recognize ministry friends, he taught us that you have to um, respect the mission field. The, the Samaritans weren't the enemy. The Samaritans were the mission field. And so we drew some principles from that. That was last week. Uh, now Luke's going to show us exactly how unseeker sensitive Jesus really was in his mission when three would-be disciple applicants are put off by the level of commitment that he requires from them. So let's pick it up in verse 57. Uh, Luke nine fifty-seven. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man 
has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but uh, let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, before we get into the outline, I, I just want to mention that the word follow here is a, is a loaded term. When we think of follow, somebody says, follow me, you know, it just means to kind of walk behind the person. But uh, this word, um, akaluo, it's where we get the word acolyte from. Uh, this isn't just to physically follow somebody. This is a, a conversion request. This is a, a command to permanently follow me to become a disciple of mine, to become a student of mine, to, to renounce your own life and be attached to me. And so wherever Jesus went, he had not only the 12 disciples, the, what we call the disciples or the apostles, but he had a large group of disciples who had given up their everyday careers and family to follow him in his ministry and to be part of that. And as they were going, he looks at some, some more people and, and tries to recruit them, others volunteer, and he's not just trying to grow numbers. He wants to grow commitment. And so that's what we see here. These three souls that we just read about, they each arrive at a fork in the road. Either they get there themselves or Jesus makes the fork for them and they encounter obstacles to their commitment. Now what is so arresting about this is that Jesus himself is the one who puts these obstacles up. He's not making it easy for them. In fact, in, in some cases he makes it difficult. This is the exact opposite philosophy of a lot of Christian churches today throughout the world that have what has become known as a seeker-sensitive seeker philosophy to ministry. When we call a church seeker-sensitive, that's not a pejorative term. That's not an insult. That is what the movement calls itself. That is the label that the movement has given itself. It was pioneered by people like uh, Rick Warren, the Saddleback Community Church, and their various um, ministries and those churches that have modeled on that. And the idea behind the seeker-sensitive model, an attractional model, it's sometimes called, is that the church needs to be attractive to unbelievers. And so when unbelievers do come in, you want to be able to invite unbelievers to church and you want them to show up and feel welcome, um, which all Christians would agree with. You want them to feel comfortable. And uh, to a certain degree, we would agree with that. Uh, but it goes as far in the secret sense of mindset. You want them not only to feel comfortable like there's a place to park and there's a nice pew to sit on and there's good cappuccinos in the back, but they actually take it one step further and say, no, they need to feel comfortable. They must, they must not feel judged. And so if an unbeliever comes into a church, we don't want to be speaking about uh, sin that they might actually be engaged in because that's going to make them squirm in their pew. That's going to make them feel judged. And so we don't want to talk about sin in the sermon. And we don't want to tell people they have to repent. Because if this is a, a seeker, if there's somebody who's seeking God, there's someone who's, who's um, looking for God enough that they have come to church, you want to make it as easy for them to stay in the church as possible. You don't want to chase them away. So you can see why this is a, this, this is a philosophy that appears to make sense. It's not like a wicked, demonic philosophy. This is, these are believers who love the Lord, who love unbelievers, who respect the mission field, as we say, and, and, and want people to be saved. 
So if you can finally get that friend of yours to come to church, imagine the pastor's preaching a hardcore fire and brimstone sermon that week and they never come back. So the idea is we don't preach against sin. We don't mention repentance. We make it real easy for people and they'll stay in church for way longer then and then through the relationships they build in church, we can lead them to Christ. So you don't get led to Christ from the, from the preaching you get led to Christ from the relationships. So that's the attractional model. And hopefully I've represented it in a way that a seeker-sensitive pastor would say, yeah, that's exactly what we do, and, and, we, and it works. And that's the thing. It does work, depending on how you define work. Um, it works in that those churches tend to grow very large. They tend to have thousands, if not even tens of thousands of people in them, and they have to go to multiple services and multiple campuses. Because everyone who comes likes being there. They usually have fantastic coffee for free. Um, the music is great. The, everything is wonderful. It's very high quality. There's a lot of money involved. And these people give money to the ministry. The problem is all of the sermons that they're hearing need to be innocuous and inoffensive. And that's hard to do. Trust me, I do this for a living. It's hard to preach the Bible without offending people. Because if you're going to be true to the Bible and the message that Jesus has, you're going to offend people. And tonight we see an example that helps us realize this was Jesus' mindset. You tell people the truth, and through the sovereignty of God, those that he's calling will accept that truth no matter how much it makes them squirm in their pew. And those who would reject the gospel, they're going to reject it whether they hear it from the preacher or whether they hear it from the person three weeks later who invited them to church. And that is a a deep belief in the sovereignty of God as he saves his people. So the, the main problem with this market-driven church, this seeker-sensitive, attractional model, is that it requires you to temper with the content of God's word, to leave certain elements out, to dilute it, to make it more palatable, to unbelievers, whereas the Bible says that the purpose of church is to build up, to edify the body of Christ. It's okay for us to have evangelistic outreach um, events, but church on Sunday, church on Wednesday, when we get together to hear the word of God, it is so that the Christians among us can be edified. And unbelievers are welcome to stay as long as they want and watch, but if they get offended, they're welcome to just walk out that door and get in the car because we don't do church for unbelievers. We do church for the church, as Christ has called us to. And the effect of that is that as Christians mature in their holiness and their witness and their love for the lost and their understanding for Scripture, they will go and make those relationships, not in the pew, but at work and in family, and in the neighborhood, and in sports clubs, and wherever you meet people, and then you invite them to church, and when they come, guess what they're going to hear? They're going to hear the truth. And if the truth offends them that much that they don't want to come back, so be it. The only other way to prevent them from hearing that is to starve the true believers of the truth week after week after week after week. Gary Gilley, in his book about this called This Little Church Went to Market, and yes, there is a sequel called This Little Church Stayed at Home, I promise you. Uh, but This Little Church Went to Market writes, quote, The express design of the user-friendly philosophy is to make unconverted sinners feel comfortable with the Christian message. 
The only way this is possible, I fear, is to change the message. For the gospel message is not a comfortable one for the unbeliever, and to try to make it so merely deforms it, unquote. He's absolutely right. If you make the gospel message easy to accept, more people will accept it, but it's not the gospel message. It's not real. It's not saving. And so what it sounds like is, um, who here is all in for Jesus? Well, that's an easy thing to say yes to. What it sounds like is, um, come to Jesus, he takes you as you are. Well, that's kind of a half-truth. He takes you as you are, but you leave your, he demands that you leave your sin behind you. You know, it, it sounds like um, uh, if you come to Jesus, he will, he will love you and he will save you. But they don't say, from your sin, and, and you will have an eternity in heaven, and, and you will have a blessing, and you can be less stressed, and all these things. And, I mean, who doesn't want to hear a message like that? The problem is it's not true, and when persecution comes, those people fall away, according to the parable of the soils. So we're going to look at Jesus Christ's approach to people who are seeking we're going to see three obstacles to commitment that we must overcome to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Three obstacles. Personal comfort, priority confusion, and postponed commitment. These are three very common obstacles that stop people from being saved that an attractional ministry will try to downplay, but Jesus in his ministry always moved it to center stage. Personal comfort, firstly, this is the first obstacle to commitment that we need to overcome to become a true disciple. In verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Here is a seeker. Here is somebody who wants Jesus. He's volunteering. And he says, I will follow you wherever you go. That's how I feel. That's how you feel, right? That you would follow Jesus wherever he went. What's Jesus going to say? Is he going to say, praise the God that the Spirit has been working in you? No, he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I mean, that's just kind of a strange thing to say to a seeker, isn't it? In most churches, you're more likely to hear, I see that hand. I see that hand. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. But Jesus says, basically, are you sure? You just said you're going to follow me anywhere. Let me tell you what that looks like. We don't get to stay in the hotel on the ministry budget. We don't fly in our Learjet, as some ministries have. We walk around and sleep under the stars. Case in point, what happened last night, we went to the Samaritan village, they said no. So we just slept out under the stars. That's what you're signing up for. I just want you to know. I'm not saying you can't join me. I want you to be sure you know what you're signing up for. And sometimes when you tell Christians everything is going to go wonderful, your kids are going to turn out great, your marriage is going to turn out great, you're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be happy, and then they become a Christian, and their wife doesn't, and so she divorces them. And the kids, well, they didn't suddenly repent of all their sin, and then you get fired at work because you're not a team player on Gay Pride Day anymore, and now you lose your, your income and you're saying, but that preacher told me things were going to get better if I came to Jesus. And he didn't tell you the date. Things get better when you come to Jesus when you die. Not before then. 
Now, yes, of course, there's just something that's indescribably amazing that true believers know about being in a right relationship with your Savior so that when you go through the difficulties of life, he's with you. But the difficulties of life don't avoid Christians. In fact, we're like magnets for trials, aren't we? It feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? Even a mangy fox has the comfort of a hole. And our Savior came to earth, he left heaven and he came to earth, and he had less comfort than a bird in a nest. And so you think you're going to live a life of comfort, you've got the wrong Savior. And that's what Jesus is saying to this guy. Matthew, in fact, tells us that this man was a scribe. He was educated, he was respected, he was employed, he was a scholar. And so Jesus just wants to recalibrate his expectations. You come with me, it's not like coming with the other rabbis. This is not a step up in the world. So Jesus wants followers, but he wants followers with their eyes wide open. He's not seeker sensitive, he's commitment cautious. He's not just trying to get the seekers in. He's trying to make them think carefully. In other places, he says, count the cost. If you'll remember um, back in verse 23, we, we were here a couple weeks ago, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, his instrument of death, daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever would save his life physically ends up losing it eternally. I, I had a, a fencing coach. I used to fence competitively and I had this coach from Germany and he was, he was not one of these like encouraging you can do it type of coaches. <laughs> He was like the old school German coach. He had coached the German Olympic pentathlete team. And he was hardcore. And there were some days where I was just exhausted. I mean, I, I wasn't being lazy. I'd just been practicing for hours and hours and hours, for days and days. And I was just dehydrated and drained. And I would complain, being like, you know, he would just drill me the same movement over and over and over. And eventually I would utter some little squeak of complaint. And he always said the same thing. Go big or go home. Go big or go home. And I never knew what that meant at the time, but now I get it. Be committed. Be all in. Or what are we even doing here? And this is what Jesus says to this guy. You want to follow me? Well then, check out of your house, leave everything and follow me, but I'm warning you, I don't even have a hole. On Sunday, we heard that verse from Revelation 3.15. Jesus says, I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot, and I would that you were either cold or hot. You can't have one foot in the church or one foot in the world. You can't be a fence-sitter. You can't be a fair-weather Christian. You have to choose. And comfort is one of the most common reasons people refuse to commit to Christ. They have to give up their comfort like the seed in the rocky soil that said, as for those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but they go and they weigh, and then they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. 
That describes so many Christians. Mark chapter 4 in the parable of the, the soils. So many people who call themselves Christians and they come to church, but then when there's the, the worries of life take them away from church and eventually from Christ, or the pursuit of riches and money and work and career and prestige and job and whatever comes with that, or the pleasures of life. In my experience as a pastor, if, you, if I found out that somebody had been a Christian for many years, professing Christ for many years, and somebody said to them, they just walked away from the Lord, guess what it was? My guess would be they found a girl. They found a guy. Sexual sin, the pleasures of life. Yeah, it could be drinking, it could be uh, drugs. The pleasures of life, it's usually usually a girl or a guy. And these are the things that God allows into our life to show us that we're not Christians. And you do no service to a person by keeping them ignorant of God's standards so that they just stay around the church. So that's personal comfort. There's another category, another obstacle that you need to overcome, and that is priority confusion. This is the second person. The person, uh, Jesus is just saying, be careful, it's not comfortable to follow me, just in case you're wondering. The second person, this happens. This isn't a volunteer. Jesus actually approaches him. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So this time Jesus initiates and he commands, not invites, he commands the man to follow him. Remember he's done this before to the fisherman that was sitting there mending their nets. Follow me. And they drop their nets, they leave their business, buy Zebedee, and they join Jesus, they become apostles. And now he's saying to somebody, can you imagine the privilege of all the people that Jesus walks past every day that he stops, he looks at you and he says, follow me. What would your response be? Jesus Christ says, follow me to you, singles you out, the spotlight's on you, and you say, A, okay, and drop everything and follow him, like the sons of Zebedee did, and like Peter and Andrew, or B, anything else. Which would you choose? You're going to choose A. You follow Jesus, in case you were wondering. If there's any condition, I'd love to, Lord, but... I have another priority. You're not worthy to be a disciple. He's not looking for those people. He's not looking for people that have various priorities of which he is one of the top ones. He's looking for people who are willing to give up everything to follow him, to take up their cross daily, to endure persecution for his name, to endure the loss of comfort for the name, and to have their priorities straight. But this person's confused. Let me first go bury my father, verse 59. Now, let's, let's just face it. At first glance, this seems like a very reasonable request. But this isn't the day of the funeral. This isn't like there's a guy who's on his way to the funeral, and Jesus says, before you go there, come follow me. And he's like, ah, I'll be there in 15 minutes. Just got to go and pay the funeral guy. No. In those days, because there was no mortuaries, there was no um, refrigeration, when somebody died, you buried them. That was the big problem with Jesus dying on, 
on the Sabbath, because, you know, as the sun was going down on the Friday, because the, what are we going to do? We can't do the whole thing. So they, they put him in the tomb in the meantime, and they came back on Sunday to finish the job, but you've got to get him in the tomb. So this is, if this person's father were dead, he would be at the funeral. So what he's saying is, allow my father to die first, and then I'll come and join you. Now, this is a euphemism, not only in their day, but even to this day in the Middle East, when you say, allow me to bury my father, that is a euphemism for, wait until I get my inheritance. That's what it means. So even today, if you have an investment opportunity with a person and, and they, they don't have the money for it, they respond by saying, wait till I bury my father. When I get my inheritance, I'll be able to invest in your business. So what he's saying here actually is, I'd love to follow you, but I've got, I want to make sure that I don't lose out on my cut of the inheritance, which is then going to support me while I follow you. But whatever the reason was is not really the point. In this guy, it happened to be, well, I need my inheritance. Maybe it was a love of money. Maybe it was, maybe it was his responsibility in the family. Whatever it was. In fact, the more legitimate their excuse was, the better an illustration it is. Jesus doesn't want any priority higher than him. Don't ever, ever respond to anything Jesus says in Scripture with, yes, but on this condition. That's not how you obey. I mean, we teach our kids that from, from little on. You have a little picture on the fridge with the hippopotamus, you know, that's smiling, who's under the water. And you tell them you, with the number one. You know, if you're, if you're a parent and you don't have that, you should get that little picture of a hippopotamus with the number one. Just draw it underwater and you say, obedience is first time all the way with a happy heart. That's obedience. If I have to tell you twice... You've disobeyed. Just go and ask Eve. It doesn't count if you disobey a few times before you actually start obeying. It doesn't count if it's a half obedience. Go and ask Saul, who didn't hack Agag to pieces like Samuel did. Partial obedience is disobedience. And it doesn't count if it's not with a happy heart. Your, your, your attitude needs to be there. That's obedience. That's what Jesus wants. So when he says, follow me, you do it. You do it immediately. You do it first time. You do it all the way, and you do it with the right attitude. That is obedience. Anything else is not worthy of Christ. When you squeeze a sponge, you see what's inside it. And so what Jesus is doing with these seekers is he's, he's squeezing them to see what comes out. And in their case, what comes out, this guy confused priorities. He has a condition. He has something he wants to take care of before following Jesus. And so Jesus says, let the dead, meaning the spiritually dead, the unbelievers, bury their own dead. But as for you, go, do something of eternal value. Proclaim the kingdom. Jesus bluntly says that the spiritual corpses can busy themselves with the good earthly matters, but the spiritually born again people need to get busy with kingdom matters. Priority confusion. So many people today are confused about their priorities. If you ask a Christian why they don't go to church 
they will have a reason that reveals their priority confusion. Unless it's, I couldn't come because I was sick, I was in jail, I was out of town. It's usually I had to work on an assignment. I had to, you know, my project management group was together, or blah, 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 or I hadn't met my quota of sales, and I had to, it's, it's usually something that sounds like a responsible thing to do, but the scriptures say that we can't neglect the gathering together of the brethren. You start making a habit, of course, you know, once in a while here and there, it's part of life, but if you make it a habit, as is the habit of son, the writer of Hebrews says, that's a problem. Priority confusion. So the third obstacle we see here is postponed commitment. So you've got personal comfort, you've got priority confusion. Let me go do this first. Here's a condition. Here's another one. Postponed commitment. Verse 61. So yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those of my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So I will follow you is in the, in, in the English it sounds more like a commitment, but in the Greek it's in, a, um, it's in a future active indicative sense, which means this is a future commitment. He's not saying, I will follow you. He's saying, I will in the future follow you. I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those in my home. Again, sounds like a very reasonable request. If I invite you to come with me right now to the trip to Israel, all expenses paid, and you definitely want to do it, you say, yes, I just need to get a dog sitter or something, you know. I need to go and hug my wife goodbye. Sorry, you only said one free ticket, you know, or whatever it is. Very reasonable response. That's not the point. The legitimacy of the, res- of the reason heightens the commitment Christ is after. He doesn't want anything in any response other than, yes, I'll do it. I will follow you, but let me first go and do this other thing sneaks in a little timing clause. Lots of people stumble over the procrastination hurdle. I'll get serious about my faith, but I first need to whatever. Usually it's, you know, I'll, I'll definitely commit and serve in the church and read my Bible more and have time for prayer uh, as soon as I get married. <laughs> like you're going to have more time. Or as soon as I have, uh, as soon as my little kids aren't little anymore. What do you think we do all day once you have kids that aren't little except drive them around, right? And feed them and shop for them and clean up after them and do their laundry. I mean, it's like, okay, I'll, once my kids are out of the house, okay, well now that, that's great. You think you're going to have more time? It just never happens. You just never ever get to the point. As soon as you have the mindset, I will do the right thing, but I won't do it now. Think about what you're saying. There will be a time in the future where this becomes easier. No, they won't. They won't. It's like Garfield's diet. Do you ever read Garfield? The cat who always starts his diet. When does he start his diet? Tomorrow. Yeah. 
tomorrow. He always starts his diet tomorrow. I mean, think about it. There are very few people, especially in church circles, who out and out say, I reject Jesus. I believe it's true. I believe for this command. I just, I absolutely reject him. That's not what they do. This is what they do. They say, I believe it. I believe the command's there. I will definitely follow later. That's how you reject Jesus, people. That's how you do it. I mean, the atheist is, I just reject it. I don't believe any of it. But the person in the church, this is how people in church reject Jesus. I'll do it, just not now. That's what this guy's doing. I'll follow you, just not now. I'll commit when I'm out of college. I'll give financially when I'm out of debt. I'll start disciplining my kids when they're a bit older. Listen, just a little footnote. Kids are like wet cement. Okay, it's hard to move wet cement around, but it's, it gets harder the longer you leave it. Eventually you need a jackhammer. I'll, I'll start parenting my kids rightly when they're older. No, I'll serve in the church after this busy season in, the, in my career. What does Jesus think of that? No one who, verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Have you ever plowed with something? Have you ever seen somebody plowing? You, a plow is not something you can start doing and then go for a smoke break. You're pushing this thing. If you stop, it stops. If you look over your shoulder, it goes crooked. Once you start doing it, you've got, you got to commit. There's a great passage in 1 Kings 19 where this image of the yoke is there and the concept of the non-hesitant disciple is also there. Um, because you might, you might be asking yourself at this point, is it too late for me to commit? I've been procrastinating. How do I fix that? Well, here you get a little um, vignette of a, a young man who made this, that mistake. He hesitated, but then he snapped out of it, and he did the right thing. First Kings 19, this is when Elijah calls Elisha. 1 Kings 19, verse 19. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. So this is a giant plow. And he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him, a symbol of, you know, we talk about passing the mantle. So he puts his mantle on him. You're going to be the next prophet to take over from me. A huge honor. And Elijah said... Let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. So do you see how this is what the the guy says to Jesus? I will follow you. Let me first go and say goodbye to my parents. And Jesus responds with this thing about the plow. So I think Jesus is drawing on this passage. Oh, you're like Elisha who was called to be the next prophet, but first wanted to go and kiss his mom and dad goodbye while he was plowing. How did that go for him? So he's uh, with him. Elijah passes by him, casts his cloak on him. He left the oxen, ran off to Elijah, said, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he, Elijah, said to him, go back. Go back again. For what have I done to you? In other words, no. That's not how this works. 
I call you to be the next great prophet. There had been no miracles, no one doing miracles since the days of Moses. This is hundreds of years later. There's one guy who's the prophet of God, and he's saying, I'm, the, I'm you know, chariot of fire appointment. <laughs> You're the next prophet, and your response is, I'm all in except for this one little thing. No, that's not, you're not qualified. And Elijah leaves him. And this is what Elisha does. He returned from following him, and it didn't go and kiss his father and mother. He returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and killed them, sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So he's like, after he's been fired and like turned away, rejected, didn't make his you know, first college choice, and Elijah leaves him, he goes back, but he doesn't go and do what he says. He goes and does something way more radical. The plow that he's using, he burns. The oxen that he has, he burns. He feeds it to the people. Like, I love that symbol of, the oxen, they're gone. <laughs> They've been eaten. And then he goes and finds him. I don't know who knows what else will happen there, but it's just this really powerful second chance. Okay, I didn't respond right the first time. I'm responding right now. I'm all in. I'm burning my ships. I'm burning my plow. And so now you go back to Luke and you have this guy saying, I will follow you. I just need to first go and kiss my father and mother goodbye and Jesus says you put your hands to the plow and you look back you're not worthy of me he's looking for people who would be complete and unflinching in their commitment and never look back is that you that's the standard that's what he's looking for if there's any sin in your life you need to have that kind of commitment the spirit will remind you of that sin he will convict you of that sin and your response needs to be first-time obedience all the way with a happy heart. Instant. That's what Jesus is looking for. William MacDonald describes these three would-be disciples aptly. He says, They left Christ to make a comfortable place for themselves in the world and to spend the rest of their lives hugging the subordinate. I love that phrase. Hugging the subordinate. In other words embracing, clinging to the thing that's just under Jesus? Are you someone who spends your life hugging the subordinate? Make sure that you don't sub stumble over the, the hurdle of personal comfort or priority confusion or postponed commitments. Don't spend your life hugging the subordinate. Go big or go home. Let's pray. Father, we do... Thank you for this um, convicting reminder of our commitment. And we do confess to you that there are times where we are not committed to you in a way that gives you the glory that you deserve, Lord Jesus. And so we repent of that tonight. And we confess to you. We want to be people of full and unflinching commitment. We don't want to be people who are hugging the subordinate, but we want to be clinging to you, our Savior, as our highest priority. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. We have questions, and Chris has a hand up. Yes, Q&A. So, can you fill in a little bit of the same little bit more 
Yeah. Great question. So how do we reconcile what we just said about the cost of discipleship and commitment to Christ with uh, his promise in Matthew eleven twenty eight that um, come to me, my, my yoke is light, my burden is easy. Well, the context um, are, are very different there. The, the context we're talking about here is uh, people that are not following him, that he's calling to follow him and realizing like there needs to be this level of commitment. But the context in Matthew 11 is people that are under the burden of a false religion that has been piled up by human beings, these laws and these rules and these stipulations um, that the Pharisees and the scribes had created this Judaism. And at that stage in his ministry, Jesus is hitting head on this, this um, system that these people were trapped in thinking they were doing God's will and thinking that a life of obedience to God is a, is a burdensome life. And you, and you still get Christians like that today. They love their rules. Well, I mean, they hate their rules, but they... They won't let them go, you know, and it's like they have rules about what they dress and, and what they eat and what they can watch and where they can go and what music they can listen to, and um, they've just got all these rules, and it becomes burdensome, and so you kind of have to cut through that and remember, like, no, come to Jesus, like, to be saved, all you have to do is trust in Him. You don't have to go to this and this and this ritual and, and do this thing and confess this to this person and whatever it is like you just trust in him and then from that from that light burden the, the the removed burden you can worship him to the point that you're willing to give up everything even your life so um it reminds me of the uh, the verse in first john 5 3 that says uh that we must keep his commandments but his commandments are not burdensome to us so first john 2 3 says this is how we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments but first john 5 3 says but his commandments are not burdensome. So it's, it's kind of this tightrope of, as a Christian, I, I obey the commands. My whole life revolves around co- obeying the commands, but it's not a burden. It's not like a checklist that someone is imposing on me. It's the exact opposite. I know I'm already saved whether I keep them or not, so I want to keep them more. So it's, a, it's a very different from keep these to be saved versus you're saved, do what you want, but I will give you a new heart that wants to keep the commandments. Does that make sense? Yeah, great. Excellent question. Thank you for that. More questions? Did you want to ask your Jephthah question? Even though I just asked, uh, did a whole sermon on it? So the question about Jephthah and, and the sacrifice of her daughter is something I just preached a whole sermon on in the evening service. Um, but, and, she, and she knows that. But I, for the sake of people who are watching this out of sync many years from now, maybe, um, the, the short answer is that the whole book of Judges is an example of what not to do. <laughs> That's just a simple way to, to approach the book of Judges. The book of Judges, the theme of it is, um, this is what happens when there's no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so the lesson is, once you, once you are untethered from the word of God, you're not anchored in truth anymore, now you are adrift morally, and you start doing things that you think are right, but are not right. And Jephthah is just one arm of the spiral of things getting worse and worse, and we're about to head into a little mini-series on Samson. And Samson is just a bad example all around. You think Jephthah was bad. I mean, he is, but you get to Samson and it's really bad. 
and then it just keeps going down until you've got a guy chopping up his concubine and FedExing her body parts all over the country. And you're like, what is this? And then the book ends. And you're like, okay, let's get to the book. Let's get to Samuel where now there's going to be a king in, in uh, Israel and people start obeying the word of God and order comes back again. So that's, that's the answer to that for now. Good. Any other questions? Sometimes people ask questions after the service and I was like, oh, you need to ask that next week because it's such a good question, but I can never remember what it is. Aliens? Anyone? <laughs> Susan? Ruth? Ruth. Absolutely, yeah. And so I guess I'm just, am I kidding it? Why it's really my question. Yeah, yeah. So, in our, so what Susan talked about, in our morning series, we were going through the book of Ruth, which happens concurrently with Judges. So while you've got this chaos in Judges, you've got this little snapshot of normality in Ruth of the people that are doing God's will. And what you have there is Naomi gets removed from that by her husband and comes back a decade later. And yes, she changes her name to Bitter, and she's that bitter old lady. You've all seen those ladies. They look like they've just been sucking on a dill pickle all day. Um, you know, just puckered up. That's her. Why? Because she lost her husband. She lost her son. She lost her other son. She's lost everything. She's coming back completely empty. Her life is over. And she, but she acknowledges that it comes from the hand of God. So it's not as much a bitterness against God as acknowledging God has dealt bitterly with me, and, and he did. I mean, that's what, you know, when, when somebody goes through a tragedy, even in our church, I don't think the right response is to go and say, just remember all things work together for good. Just remember God's love you, God's good. I mean, uh, you don't want to say it glibly. I mean, all those things are true, and those are the things that true believers cling to. But you also want to, as you're saying that, acknowledge, man, you, you've had it really tough. And this comes from God, and you, and you went through this, and it's, it's brutal. And I don't know how you're still standing. So, Orpah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think Orpah, Orpah's choice to go back to her people and her gods reveals that she was only in the, the Yahwehistic movement because her husband was. You know, she married this good-looking Israeli dude and, and did, did what they did, and as soon as he dies, and she's like, yeah, you're right. I, I, this God has nothing for me. She goes back to other gods. But that shows how two people in the same household can have completely different relationships with the Lord. One can be superficial, and the other one can be genuine. And Ruth is genuine because she, she makes that declaration, your God, my God, and I don't care what happens, come what may. And, um, and you see that in families. You'll say one child will grow up, and as soon as they have an opportunity when they go off to college, they go straight to the world. And the other one grows up, and they go off to college, and they seek out a Bible study, and they, they invest in the Lord, and even though they're away from their parents, they make the faith their own. And that's, that's what Ruth did, yeah. Uh, Michael, and then Laurie, and then Charles. <laughs> Salvation is free? But there's also a cost to discipleship, so how do you present it 
Yeah, the way I've heard it said is salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. <laughs> um, so yeah, salvation is free in the sense, it's kind of back to Chris's question there. Salvation is free in that nothing that you do earns your salvation. And yet, what are you being saved from? Being saved from your sin. So that's a cost right there. I mean, people love their sin, and now you're being saved from it. Um, your, your life is now in jeopardy in a new way. Uh, your comfort is in jeopardy, your finances are in jeopardy, like everything about you is now um, up for grabs in a way that it wasn't before. And so if you're not, those things aren't earning your salvation, so salvation is free, but being saved can cost you your family, it can cost you your job, it can cost you, it costs you, you know, all the money that you give to the church that you didn't have to give if you were an unbeliever, I mean, it, it, it does cost you, but not to earn your salvation. So that's what they mean by salvation is free, but it costs you everything. Uh, Lori. I like what you said when you were talking about grief, that you can grieve and trust at the same time. I have used that so many times with people yeah. since you preached that. That is just such a beautiful, she, you know, she had right theology. Yeah, grieving and trusting at the right time, is, and Naomi to me is such a great example of that because she's not, and the, the Psalms are like that too. You read these Psalms and it's like, you know, God, you, you, you're against me, you know, um, and take not your spirit from me. And I mean, it's, there's, I think we do a disservice among Christians when we act like it's wrong to be upset um, and to be grieving and mourning and, you know, just desperately sad. Um, those are human emotions that are not sinful. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53 tells us. You see his, his friend Lazarus dies. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead, and yet he's weeping. Like, what's, if you went to a funeral where you knew the guy wasn't actually dead, you wouldn't cry, right? But, but he was dead, and so that's a human response to that. It's our spirits raging against the curse and the effects of the curse. And you have somebody who's in, a, in an accident or loses a loved one or a child or... Um, anything like you 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 put your whole life into a business and then it collapses and you lose it or whatever it doesn't help to go and tell that person well god's sovereign he's in control everything's going to be okay it's like no it's not it's brutally painful and that's okay to that's okay to say that we're grieving and we should allow each other that freedom to grieve it, you cross a line when you start um accusing god of doing something wrong which is not what naomi did or the psalmists. Yeah, God never does anything wrong. But that doesn't mean we need to enjoy the discipline. Sometimes it's discipline, sometimes it's just tragedy. But when, if you talk about discipline, Hebrews um, 11 says that all discipline at the time is painful, but it yields in the future the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Good. And, and then Charlie. Yeah, King Saul makes a rash vow as well, just like Jephthah. He does where he says, you know, wh whoever eats before this and this, uh, they'll have to be killed. And then it turns out it was Jonathan. It's his own son. And same thing. So Saul then says, well, then I guess we have to kill Jonathan. Um, 
And Jonathan's like, well, I guess you have to kill me. Same thing as what happened with Jephthah. But there the army steps in and says, no, are you guys daft? Have you learned nothing from the book of Judges? It's like we only have six books in our Bible, and that's the last one. Like, come on now, you know? Um, <laughs> seven books. So they kind of step in and say, no, you have to break your rash vow. And they, they kind of release him from that commitment, which is what Jephthah should have done. He should have, shouldn't have made the vow, but when he did, don't kill your kids. I mean, it's like Christianity 101. Don't kill your kid. <laughs> right? It's something Catholics and Protestants agree on, at least. That's why they're all against abortion. Don't kill your kid. Yes? Kind of a random one for you, Shoot. Yeah, is that Matthew 27? Yes. Uh, he's asking about when Jesus dies in Matthew and the veil is t- torn uh, from the top to the bottom and the next thing that happens is it says that people came out of their tombs and appeared to many people. There was like a resurrection of people that had been recently buried, apparently. 27, uh, Matthew 27, 52. And your question is, what's my take? I'm like, yeah, it's, it, it happened. <laughs> I, I think what happened... <laughs> I mean, it is a very mysterious thing that happened, and it's kind of weird that it's just thrown in there. Like, you would think that would be, have like a whole chapter about what happened, um, kind of like Lazarus. But it appears what's happening there is that at the time that um, Jesus dies, the veil gets torn, and there's this, there's this explosion of um, expression from God the Father that his son has died for the sin of the world. And that expression comes through darkness and earthquake and a tearing of the veil and graves that are being toppled you know don't don't picture people buried underground coming up like zombies picture um because st- the tombs are pushed into mountains and they usually have lots of them there was stones in front of them so the, the earthquakes moving the stones and then out of the tombs come the those people who had been recently buried they weren't i mean they, they were resuscitated they were resurrected as a as a foreshadowing, a picture, a, um, a glimpse of what's to come in the resurrection of Christ that's going to happen a few days later and, um, and then the resurrection of all of us. Like, that's what was accomplished in that moment. The earth shook, you know, the darkness was overcome, the graves were broken open, um, and yeah, people came back to life and appeared to, it wasn't like, and then fell all over and they had to rebury them. Like, no, they were back alive and were telling the story of what happened, you know, just like Lazarus. So it was just part of the testimony that that happened. Good question. Uh, yes? Yes, so the, with the, the veil tearing... Yes, so the, absolutely. So the significance of the veil tearing um, is that this was the veil, and don't picture, um, you know, chiffon, uh, <laughs> picture a, a curtain, like a thick drape, drapery. Um, and this curtain is what separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The only person allowed past that curtain was the high priest himself um, to go and, and uh, make sacrifice 
on behalf of the nation. Um, and if anyone else went in there, they would die. Well, when Jesus dies, we now no longer have a, a Jewish system anymore. The high priest is no longer there. Jesus becomes our high priest. At that moment, he has made the atonement that all of these dead lambs have been put, um, foreshadowing and pointing towards. And so the tearing of the veil is a very dramatic and graphic punctuation point that God put on the crucifixion is like, now we don't need Judaism. We don't need a whole, now the access to the Holy of Holies is available to anybody everywhere. It's what Protestants call the priesthood of all believers. That's why we don't call the person who preaches a priest. He's a pastor. He's just one of us. He's just part of the flock. Whereas a priest was like somebody special you have to go to to get access to God. We no longer have priests. We are all priests. We all have access directly to God because there's one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. So that's what the symbol was. And the detail that it's from top to bottom is interesting because a curtain that, that's big would be impossible to tear physically. But I guess if you had like two tug-of-war teams pulling from the bottom, they might be able to tear it. But this was a spontaneous rip from the top, which is not the way it would rip ever. It was a supernatural thing. It was a miracle, yeah.